Please be seated. Ronald, I don't want you to take this the wrong way, but I hate you. This was going to be difficult enough as it was, and then that. But I think all of our hearts are saddened tonight. Sue's passing. We certainly will miss her. Uh, To try to move beyond that, I... You know, when I go a little long, there is no shortage of people to mention that to me. This morning, I went a little short and nobody said anything to me. So I don't know, you know, what what the deal is, uh, is there, but y'all owe me 10 minutes. Uh, I'm not going to collect tonight, but at some point in time, I'll let you know. But we have been, uh, for the last several weeks on on Sunday nights, looking at the life of Moses. And as I was sitting there this afternoon, really, really thinking about this and and getting thoughts together, we've mentioned before that Moses' life can be separated into three 40-year periods. Uh, The first 40-year period is the time that he was in Egypt, from the time he was found by Pharaoh's daughter and raised as, as her son. And then the next 40 years is when, you know, he is in Midian and he finds a wife and he works for his father-in-law Jethro as a shepherd. Then the next 40 years is from the burning bush essentially to the end of Moses' life. And as I was thinking about that a little bit, I thought about the fact that the first 80 years of Moses' life, the first two-thirds of Moses' life, is covered in two chapters of the Bible. The next 40 years, or just one-third of his life, fills up the better part of four books in the Bible. And I had a thing, and I thought, well, is there anything significant about that? I think there is a little bit something significant. And that is, you know, what we do before the Lord gets a hold of us really doesn't matter. You know, the 40 years that he spent in Egypt, the 40 years that he spent in Midian are really of no significance compared to what God called Moses to do. And I guess all of us probably have a past. Some of us, some of our pasts are longer than others. Some are a little more colorful than others. But once God calls us and once God starts using us, That past really doesn't matter. And we're able to put that behind us. And it's the next chapters that really matter. As we see in the life of Moses. So we have so far talked about his birth. Talked about that time in Egypt. Talked about the time in Midian. And we've gone through the burning bush. And we've gone through him and Aaron. Confronting Pharaoh and the ten plagues and all of that. And then the Passover. And finally that last plague. The death of the firstborn. And Pharaoh finally saying get up and get out of here. And then Pharaoh changes his mind again. And and the Israelites, I imagine, think everything's fine. You know, they've got the cloud leading them during the day and the fire leading them at night. And everything is going just hunky-dory. And all of a sudden, one day, they end up at the shores of the Red Sea. And they look behind them, and it is a cloud of dust as the Egyptians are pursuing them. 
And then we have the whole parting of the Red Sea thing, the cloud and the the fire going from in front of them to behind them to where the Egyptians can't get to them and the Red Sea parts and they cross through on the dry ground and then the Egyptians follow them and then the waters come in and all the Egyptians are drowned and, and Miriam and Moses sing songs to God and the people of Israel are praising God for the deliverance that God has given them. And you would just think that from now on, everything's going to be fine. From now on, there's no way that the Israelites would ever doubt God. Look what he had done for them. Look what they had seen. They had seen the plagues on Egypt. They had seen the death of the firstborn. They had seen the Red Sea part and they crossed on dry ground. They'd seen it come back over and kill all and drown all the Egyptians. So there can be no doubt in their minds that God is with them. That God is for them. The cloud and the pillar of fire and all that. And then we get to chapters 15 through 17 of Exodus. In which we have a series of... Trials for the Israelites. You know, the Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians that these things were written, basically, and I'm going to paraphrase, these things were written about the Israelites so that we don't make the same mistakes. Somebody said, or it's a quote, I don't know exactly what it is, but it says, those who do not learn from the past are doomed to repeat it. And Paul wrote that in 1 Corinthians saying, don't be like the Israelites. And we've already talked about this a little that, you know, we get pretty judgmental on the Israelites, don't we? We, you know, we, we, oh, how could they do that? I just did that, didn't I? Didn't I just do that? Yeah. But in our own lives, I think sometimes we do the same thing. God gives and gives and gives and blesses and blesses and blesses. And then things kind of go wrong. Things go sour in our lives. And we wonder, is God with us? Is God paying attention? Is God here at all? And so as we go through, we're not going to read all of 15 through 17, but we're going to read a a bit of it. So beginning in chapter 15, verse 22, this this is the beginning of the rest of the story. Now they are free from Egypt. Okay, They don't have to worry about Egypt anymore. They're on their way to the promised land, the land promised Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Then Moses led Israel from the Red Sea and they went into the desert of Shur. For three days they traveled in the desert without finding water. When they came to Mara, or Marah, you can pronounce it any way you want to, they could not drink its water because it was bitter. That is why the place is called Marah. And in your footnotes, that means bitter. Okay? All right. So the people grumbled against Moses saying, what are we to drink? Now, I don't know what bitter water means. I'm just going to say it was yucky water. Okay? Not, Not good to drink water. Then Moses cried out to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a piece of wood, and he threw it in the water, and the water became sweet. In other words, it became drinkable. There the Lord made a decree and a law for them, and he tested them. He said, if you will listen carefully to the voice of the Lord your God, and do what is right in his eyes, if you pay attention to his commands and all his decrees, I will not bring any of the diseases I brought on the Egyptians, for I, the Lord, I am the Lord who heals you. There, then they came to Elam where there were 12 springs and 70 palm trees and they camped there near the water. So we have this situation. They come, they hadn't had anything to drink for three days and then they finally come to some water, but it's not drinkable. And so God provides for them. And you'd think everything's fine again. Not so much. Look at chapter 16. 
The whole Israelite community set out from Elam and came to the desert of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month after they had come out of Egypt. In the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. And the Israelites said to them, if only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted. But you have brought us into this desert to starve this entire assembly to death. And so they complain because they don't have any any food. And then we know what happens. God says two things are going to happen. First of all, there's going to be, you want your pots of meat? There's going to be some meat. And the quail comes. And then he says, not only that, but I'm going to provide food for you every day. Every day when you wake up, there is going to be food on the ground. And you are to collect that food, enough for your family for that day. Don't collect any more than that. Just enough for that day. And on the fifth day, no, on the sixth day, I'm getting my Sabbaths confused. On the sixth day, collect a double portion because you're not going to collect any and there's not going to be any on the Sabbath day. Okay, so collect a double portion on the sixth day. Well, they wake up and sure enough, there's quail and then this manna comes and they don't know what it is. And so they say, what is it? And that's the word manna. And so that's what they called it. You know, it was called, what is it? And so you would think that quail miraculously appears and this manna miraculously appears And God had just told them what? If you do what I say, everything will be fine. Well, believe it or not, some of them people didn't do what God said. Some of them took more than they needed for the day. And exactly what God had told them would happen, happened. When they got up the next morning, it was full of maggots and it smelled. Ew. Okay, that's just pretty, that's just pretty. God said, okay, you don't listen to what I say. Uh, and if, if I'd have been God, I'd have made him eat it. Now, that's just me. You're going to eat the maggots and the manna, okay? If I'd have been God, but I'm not. So, and then some of them on the sixth day decided they weren't going to get a double share. Why? God's been giving it to us every day. Surely there's going to be manna tomorrow. And so they wake up on the Sabbath day and no manna. So they have no food for the day because they didn't listen to God. Look at what it says in verse 34 of chapter 16. As the Lord summoned Moses and Aaron put on the manna in front of, they they kept a jar of the manna to put into the tabernacle later on. The Israelites ate manna 40 years. Until they came to a land that this, that was settled. They ate manna until they reached the border of Cana, Canaan. And then in case you were wondering about the measurements there, it clears it all up by saying, and Omer is one-tenth of an ephah. Does that clear everything up for you? Yeah, I, I don't know any of that either. Okay. So we have the water that was, that was bitter that became sweet. We've got food coming from heaven. And... Here we go again. Chapter 17. 
The whole Israelite community set out from the desert of sin, traveling from place to place as the Lord commanded. They came at, camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. So they quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. And Moses said, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you put the Lord to the test? But the people were thirsty for water there and they grumbled against Moses. And they said, why do you bring us up out of Egypt to make us and our children and livestock die of thirst? The Lord, Moses cried out to the Lord, what am I to do with these people? They're about ready to stone me. The Lord answered Moses, walk on ahead of the people, take some of the elders of Israel and take your hand in your hand, the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. I will stand there before you by the rock at Horeb, strike the rock and water will come out of it for all the people to drink. So Moses did this in the sight of the elders of Israel and he called the place Massa and Meribah. Because the Israelites quarreled and because they tested the Lord. And you can see in the footnote that those two words mean quarreling and testing with the Lord. And they testing the Lord saying, is the Lord among us or not? So how many of you are like me? And we were little bitty kids in Bible class. And whether it was the flannel graph or whatever it was, you know, back in your day. Uh, may have been hieroglyphics, I don't know. But, you know, whatever it was back in your day. And when we come to this story, we have Moses striking a rock and this nice little stream of water kind of coming out of the rock. Have you ever really thought about the fact that the water from this rock had to, not feed, but whatever, satisfy, quench, that's a good word, two million people. This was not a little spigot of water. This was not a little faucet. In my mind now, unlike the flannel graph, in my mind now, when Moses struck that rock, it was a waterfall. It was gushing out in order to be enough water for all the people. Now, we know, because this is the Sunday night crowd, we know that this incident is going to get Moses into trouble a little later on. But we don't know that yet because we haven't gotten there yet. So just wipe that, you know, from your memory. So we've got water, we've got food, and we've got water again. Grumbling and complaining all along. Then, in verse 8, the Amalekites came and attacked the Israelites at Rephidim. And Moses said to Joshua, choose some of our men and go out to fight the Amalekites. Tomorrow I will stand on top of the, uh, tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with staff, with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua fought the Amalekites as Moses had ordered and Moses, Aaron and Hur went up to the top of the hill. As long as Moses held his hands up, the Israelites were winning. But whenever he lowered his hands, the Amalekites were winning. When Moses' hands grew tired, they took a stone and put it under him and sat on, and he sat on it. And Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side, one on the other, so that his hands remained steady until sunset. So Joshua overcame the Amalekite army with the sword. And the Lord said to Moses, write this on a scroll as something to be remembered. And make sure that Joshua hears it, because I will completely blot out the memory of Amalek under heaven. Moses built an altar and called it, the Lord is my banner. He said, for hands were lifted up to the throne of God. The Lord will be at war against the Amalekites from generation to generation. 
So as the children of Israel cross the Red Sea, as they're beginning their journey, they have some times of trials, some things that were going on. Go ahead and let's show the the map here. Now, we're not 100% sure about some of these places. Some of these places don't exist anymore, so we're not exactly sure. But as the children of Israel came out, maybe this is where they crossed the Red Sea, you know, part of that. They come over here, and maybe this is where Mara was. That's where the uh, water was bitter, but then Moses threw in the, the piece of wood, and it became sweet. Elam right is here. That was the good place. You know, that was a place that had the, the, the springs and the palm trees and all of that kind of stuff. And so then they come around here to Rephidim. And so somewhere in there is where the uh, water from the stone comes from. Now, they're making their way to Mount Sinai. That's where God is leading them. But up in here somewhere, the Amalekites, who must have been around in these parts, came and attacked them. And you remember that God originally did not want them going, you know, the shortest distance between two points is a straight line or something like that, unless there's a desert in the middle, okay? But the shortest way to get over here to Canaan would have been to come up by the, the, the Mediterranean Sea and over this way. But God said he didn't want to do that because that's where the Philistines lived and they were a fighting bunch of people. Okay, they knew how to fight. They were warriors. These Amalekites apparently weren't as ferocious as the Philistines. Because notice that not only did God allow Israel to go into battle. This is their first battle coming out of Egypt. But did you see what Moses said to Joshua? Take some of our men. Not all of them. Just take some of them. And take them out and do battle against the Amalekites. And then we have that whole thing about, about Moses standing there and, and Aaron and her, you know, holding his arms up as long as they could. And, uh, you know, until, until the battle was over. So as we look at this real quickly, four things we need to think about when it comes to dealing with trials in our lives. First of all, expect trials to come. They're going to happen. Throughout the Old Testament, that is a thing. Trials often come after great victories. Overconfidence seems to be a problem sometimes with God's people. Now, if some of you are really deep thinking, not deep sleeping, deep thinking, you're saying, now wait a minute, this morning... You jumped around up here and said, V-I-C-T-O-R-I, we're victorious, you know, and all of that. And now you're talking about the people being overconfident. Those two themes don't seem to mesh. The problem always was that the Israelites got overconfident in themselves. Oh, well, God brought us through the Red Sea, but we can do the rest on our own. God led us into this battle, but we can do it. We don't need you now. Thanks. We appreciate the little help, but we're okay from here on out. And then they always ended up in trouble again. Trials are going to come in our lives. God has always told us there to be trials and tribulations, part of the testing of our faith. The temptation to quarrel and grumble. Now, seriously, 
If you were marching in a desert and it had been three days since you had anything to drink, do you really think you'd have been any better than the Israelites? You really think you wouldn't have grumbled and quarreled and complained and said, what is going on here? You see, we have all this in hindsight. But I think if we put ourselves in their shoes, we can see ourselves a lot. It makes sense to me on one level. You've been out there for three days. There's nothing to drink. Would you not begin to wonder what... What are you doing? Why did you bring us out here? You said you're going to take care of us. We've been a month without food or whatever the case may be. We've been traveling again and we didn't have any water anymore. And so they're grumbling and complaining on one level seems justified. But on another level, obviously isn't. Because God has promised them. I will take care of you. I will give you what you need. So there was the temptation to quarrel and grumble. There was the temptation to go back. We've already seen it once. This is now the second time. We're going to see it for the next 40 years almost. We should have just stayed in Egypt. We had it so much better off. When really they didn't. And they were going to a place that was going to be much better. That God had promised them. So we need to expect that trials will come. Secondly, we need to trust God. Over and over again, God is promising the Israelites. If you will trust me, I will provide for you. We have a difficult time with trust a lot of times, I think. You know, I... How many of you have ever been uh, at, at one of those, maybe a, a ropes course or something like that, where you've done trust fall? How many of you ever done the trust fall? Okay. Not me. I don't trust you. Now, the only time I actually had the opportunity to do that is when we were at a uh, youth retreat. And so, you know, and the way it works is you have, you know, people on one side, people on another side, and they interlock their arms. And then somebody stands up on a table or a stump in this case and just basically falls back, trusting that the people behind them are going to catch them. And so all of the kids, you know, they, they, okay, we're going to do that. They do that. They do that. They do that. And then they wanted me to do it. And I looked at And it was nothing but the teenagers. And I'm like, nope, 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 nothing personal. I'm not jumping on you either. Mm -mm, No. We just have kind of a, a, a problem with that. Trusting, trusting. But God says, trust me. And God has been saying to the Israelites, trust me. When we're going through those difficult times, when we're going through those trials, when we're going through those temptations, we need to trust that God is going to bring us out on the other side. That God is going to provide what we need. That God is going to give us the strength. That God is going to give us the courage to do whatever it is he's called us to do. We need to trust God. Thirdly, 
We need to obey God's instructions. Isn't that what God, that kind of goes along with what we were talking about this morning, but, but God told them, every now and then, God has to sit the Israelites down and just say, we need to have a heart to heart. And this is early in the journey. And God already sees there's a problem. And he says, guys, listen, if you will simply do what I say, I'm going to bless you beyond what you can even imagine. 40 years later, as they're getting ready to go into the promised land, God is going to say the same thing. Now, people, I'm fixing to give you the land that I promised you. If you will do what I say, I will bless you beyond measure. If you don't do what I say, you're going to have hardships and troubles. And we know because, again, that they didn't do what God said. And they had hardships and troubles. God calls us to obey his instruction. Again, like the manna. Sometimes does God give us things that really don't necessarily make any logical sense? You know, to us at least. What's wrong logically? What's wrong with getting two omers or ephahs? I don't know, whatever. Two, Two buckets of manna. Well, what's wrong with getting a little extra for tomorrow? You know, it's a hassle to go out there every day. Doesn't it make sense to, you know, kind of take it easy and get enough for two days and you don't have to go out there every day? That makes sense to me. That's not what God said. Doesn't matter whether it was logical. Don't get more than you need for a day. And they disobeyed him and it got all maggoty. And then again on the Sabbath day. Now, God, I understand that the Sabbath is holy and and we're not supposed to work and this and that. But, you know, really going out and collecting a little food, that's not really work. So why don't you go ahead and let the manna fall on the Sabbath day? Maybe I'm too tired on Friday. I don't want to collect a double portion. But God said, there's not going to be any manna on the Sabbath. Sometimes what seems logical to us doesn't matter. Our personal feelings don't matter. The majority's opinion doesn't matter. What matters is what God has said and what God has commanded. We must be diligent in our obedience to him. And fourthly, we ought to remember God's lessons. You know, God knew what kind of people he was dealing with. He knew that they had, you know, the attention span of a gnat. And they weren't going to remember what he had done yesterday. So he tried all along the way to get them to do things that would help remind them. Whether it was the naming of a certain place. Or whether it was building an altar. Or later on when we cross the Jordan River, we're going to set up the 12 stones. Or keeping the the Passover feast. Or all these other things that God wanted the Israelites to use as a reminder that they could hand down from generation to generation what God has done. 
Now, I think back in my life, and there are, you know, certain times and certain memories that I think about, you know, God had a hand in that. I can, I can see specifically where God was working there. And I keep those maybe as a mental memory. Maybe I have a little uh, reminder, piece of memorabilia or whatever to help me remind myself of what God has done. Not an idol or anything that I worship, but, but something to help me remember. That's what the Lord's Supper is. It's a reminder so that we don't forget. So that we never forget why or what God has done for us and the sacrifice that Jesus makes. And it's an opportunity, again, to share with generation to generation. How many of you who are parents remember the first time your children were still very young, but old enough to know that something weird was going on? What? What's that all about? The singing I get... Yeah, you know, we sing. The praying I get, we teach our children to pray. The boring preacher I get, you know, that's just what you got to suffer through. But what is that when they start handing out the grape juice and the cracker? But was it not an opportunity to already begin to share with your children what God has done and what Jesus has done? And say, this is the way that we remember the sacrifice that Jesus made. And I may not understand it quite yet, but you're already planting that seed. It's already there. And so just like all these pieces of memory that God is giving Israel, I think the Lord's Supper is not just for us, but also for the generations behind us to remind and to explain. Now we know... There's going to go that time, you know, where we get through, uh, we cross over into the promised land and Joshua and all those kinds of things. And, you know, Joshua was a great man. And the very end of Joshua, what does he say? You know, choose you this day whom you will serve. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Flip one chapter over. The book of Judges. It doesn't get any worse. The next generation knew nothing about God. Whose fault was that? The next generation's fault? Now the older generation's fault for not teaching them. And so we need to be, we need to remember God's lessons and we need to teach them to our children. So this evening as we look at this difficult time in the early time of the Israelites as they leave Egypt, we expect trials. They're going to come. We trust God. We obey his commands and we remember his lessons. If you're here this evening, there's some way we can help or encourage you. We invite you to come now as we stand and as we sing. We hope by listening to this lesson, you have found a better understanding of the Bible. And through that better understanding, find a closer relationship with God and His Son, Jesus Christ, our living Savior. If you have any questions or desire more information, please feel free to contact us here at the Dangerfield, Texas Church of Christ. You can find us at dfield.org. That's D-F-I-E-L-D-C-O-C dot O-R-G. Or you can email at dfieldcoc 
7779 at AOL.com or you can call us at 903-645-2896. If you are local to the Dangerfield area, we would love an opportunity to meet you and encourage you in person at 818 West W.M. Watson Boulevard, Dangerfield, Texas, 75638. Our meeting times are Sunday mornings at 9.30 a.m. for Bible class and 10.30 a.m. for worship service, Sunday evening at 6 p.m. for worship service, and Wednesday evening at 6.30 p.m. for our midweek Bible class. Grace and peace be with you always.